Uh, look with me, please. Uh, the Epistle of Jude. And we'll begin our reading um, in verse 1. And we'll read through the entirety of this epistle. It's only 25 verses. And then tonight we'll begin an overview of the book as we always do. So we begin to look into this epistle. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how the that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds that are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of the same have compassion, and of some have compassion, making a difference." And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. As I always do uh, when we begin a study of any book of Scripture, I want to provide you with an overview of this epistle 
And the epistle of Jude is another of the shorter books or epistles within the New Testament. As we have discovered from our recent study of John's first, second, and third epistle, both the second and third epistles uh, of John being extremely brief letters, the brevity of the epistle, as we've come to understand, does not reduce or negate the significance of the content of the letter or the epistle itself. And as we will see within this overview, such is the case with the epistle of Jude. So let's begin this evening by looking at the author of the epistle. In, in the first verse of the epistle, we read Jude, verse 1, uh, and, and the first word in the, in the whole verse and epistle is his name, Jude. So that, of course, leads us to this question, who was Jude? And while you may have heard someone comment that no one names their son Judas, you've heard that before, of course, the truth is that those named Judas are also referred to as Jude, <laughs> And what's more, the name Jude was a common Jewish name. There are several mentions of men named Judas in the New Testament, and it appears that there are at least five men by this name, and some of them are mentioned multiple times within the Gospels and other New Testament books. So just to name the at, least, at least the five that we know to be, there of course was Judas Iscariot, probably one of the most known of those going by this name. Now we know his name is Judas, but again, Jude and Judas could be the same. And we'll see that in a moment. I'm going to show you that in Scripture, so, so it's not just uh, conjecture on our part. But Judas Iscariot in Matthew 10.4, and I'm only mentioning a, a reference of them. There's many verses that refer to Judas Iscariot, and other verses that refer to some of these other Judes or Judases. And so uh, you need to understand that. I'm just giving you an example of where you can find them mentioned. So Judas Iscariot is found in Matthew 10.4. You have Judas, the brother of James and Jesus, in Matthew 13.55. Judas of Galilee in Acts 5.37, Judas in Damascus in Acts 9.11, and Judas uh, Barsabbas in Acts 15.22. Now the scripture makes a clear distinction between Judas Iscariot and the other Judas referred to as not Iscariot. This is an interesting statement as well in John 14.21-22. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, Jesus said. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then in verse 22, Judas saith unto him, Not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Luke's gospel record speaks of Judas, also known as Jude, the brother of James. Luke 6, 13 through 16. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelos, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. In Matthew's gospel record, we are told that James and Judas were brothers of Jesus. Matthew thirteen fifty three through 56. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, and when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? I believe it's certainly reasonable to concede that the thought that Jude, the brother of James, is probably Judas, the brother of James and Jesus, 
as concluded or as mentioned in these verses. So I think it's, it's not unreasonable for us to put these together and see, connect the dots to see that this Jude, there's a Judas who's the brother of Jesus. We see that James is the brother of Jesus. And then there is Jude, the brother of James. And so Jude, the writer of the epistle, who's the brother of James, it would stand to reason that this is the same one referred to as Judas, who's also the brother mentioned to be the brother of Jesus, or the son, of course, of Mary, so the half-brother of Jesus. So it's interesting, the many different Judes that are mentioned and Judases that are mentioned in Scripture, and to recognize as well that Jude and Judas can be interchangeably used, not meaning it's always the same person being referred to, but however, still you have Jude and Judas. And you see the connections, hopefully, here tonight, even as I mentioned, because you have in for instance, the verse we just read a moment ago, Matthew 13, you see where there is his brethren, Jesus' brethren, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters. But yet then Jude here says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so obviously it, you make the connection here to see that this is Jude or Judas, the brother of James, who as well would be the brother of Christ or the half-brother of Christ, of course. Then we go on to see, Jude goes, it continues, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now Jude identified as the servant of Jesus Christ and as the brother of James. And it was this James who became well known for his place in the church at Jerusalem. And as we've already discussed from Scripture, Jude was one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus, Matthew thirteen fifty-five, Mark 6, 3. And in Galatians 1, 19, the apostle Paul makes mention of James, the brother of the Lord Jesus as well, when he says, but other of the apostles saw I none, Paul is stating, save James, the Lord's brother. So Paul states that he saw no one other than James as far as the apostles are concerned, which James being the brother of Christ, half-brother of Christ, who is the apostle as well called by the Lord. And so as we connect the dots of who Jude was, as defined by Scripture, it becomes quite evident that this same Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, and yet he refers to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Identifying as the brother of James, Jude helps us understand his familial connection to Christ. However, Jude does not emphasize this reality, but deems it more important to identify as the servant of Jesus Christ. So to be a servant of Jesus Christ as a spiritual brother was greater than a claim as part of the earthly family of the Lord Jesus Christ. James begins his epistle in a very similar manner. Whenever James says in James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So what greater calling and identity could one possibly have? Jude's physical connection to the Lord, having the same mother, in no way gave him any spiritual advantage. In other words, to have the same earthly mother paled in comparison to having the same heavenly father through the redemption provided in Jesus Christ. So even if, if you find Jude and James being the half-brothers of Jesus, Judas and and James being the half-brothers of Jesus, yet you find uh, that Jude and James, as far as the writers of the epistles are concerned, that they state that they are the servants of Jesus Christ, while they are, of course, brother, Jude says that he's the brother of James, obviously, and so we see this connection that is made here. However, both identify as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, what's important here is the spiritual connection. And let me stop and say this as well, because this is a Tremendous significance in light of what Scripture teaches, especially the Apostle Paul, all throughout Romans, specifically, whenever Paul even says uh, that the Jew has no advantage. What? Do you have an advantage because you're a Jew? And, and again, the Jew did much uh, uh, 
was guilty of this in that they would take and, and stake claim as children of Abraham and, of course, children of the promise, yet rejecting the very seed of that promise who was Jesus Christ. And so, in doing so, they were, they were showing spoke to Christ, the religious Jews and, and Pharisees and such, when they spoke with Jesus himself in his earth time, during the time of his earthly ministry, if you recall, even like, for instance, in, in the gospel according to John. Whenever uh, they, it's chapter 5, if I'm not mistaken, whenever they say that, uh, you know, we be of our father Abraham, and, and, and they speak about how that, that they are, are not born as was Jesus, because they considered him to be born illegitimately, which he wasn't, but that's how they viewed him. And so, if you recall, they, they bragged on their, their connection physically to Abraham, rather than recognizing this is the very Son of God, the one who created Abraham, who is standing before them, whom they rejected. And so they were more concerned with this connection. And it's interesting that when you look at James and Jude, for instance, neither one of them boast of this, but rather tells us of them, but yet they don't boast of them. claim, rather, we are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the servants of God. And this connection was much greater than that of a physical relationship. Second, let's look at the recipients of the epistle. He goes on to say, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, this is quite a bit to say here, actually, quite, quite a statement that is made here concerning the, the audience to whom Jude has written. This epistle, as the epistle of James, is a general epistle to all believers. However, some have suggested that Jude possibly had a particular church or group of believers in mind when writing this epistle. Nonetheless, the truth, provides, the truth that Jude provides the warnings he, he gives, the exhortations that he provides, and the confidence in God's promises that he relays is only relevant to all believers, but also just as important for us as it was to any particular people to whom Jude may have been writing. So even if Jude had a particular group or church in mind, the truths which Jude, Jude conveys within this epistle are just as important, significant, and relevant to us and to all believers as it would have been to any specific or particular group of believers, even in the day in which he lived. Jude identified his audience by three distinct conditions. As a matter of fact, let me, before I go further, let me mention this. Because if you look at verse 3, uh, which is very key here, and we'll get to this in a moment, but notice what he says. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, and common here is that of being... It is that of being common as in that which was um, uh, not just recognized, but that which had been given to, to all those who were redeemed. So this is a, a salvation in which they had been partakers of together. And he says um, that I wrote unto you the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. Now notice what he says, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Uh, someone stated... Interesting. Actually, I stumbled across something today, and I was listening to uh, not intentionally, and it happened to be along the lines of Jude. And uh, as I was listening, the comment was made that 
this implies, obviously, which, to which I agree, that there was always going to be a contention against the faith which had one time been delivered to the saints. And we'll deal with this breaking it down as we work through the text. But yet the point being that it's expected for there to be contention concerning the faith. So you're to earnestly contend for the faith with the expectation that there's going to be opposition. And so when Jude addresses this group of believers, or the, the, those to whom he writes, he, identifies his, he identified his audience by three distinct characteristics or three distinct uh, conditions. First of all, notice with me, he states, to them that are, were sanctified by God. Now, sanctification is a positional truth which is manifested in a practical manner. Sanctification as we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, is in this particular passage, sanctification is dealing with us being born again. He, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, but we are bound to give thanks all to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So he's saying God's chosen you from the beginning. He's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. This is not talking about if we get become sanctified enough, then we end up in, with salvation. No, he's saying God chose us from the beginning to the salvation. The means by which this takes place is through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now that's interesting because Jesus says in John, of course, 17, in his intercessory prayer, in his high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them through thy truth, Thy word is truth. So sanctification takes place through God's word. But notice what he says here. Sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. So belief of the truth of God's word. So we come to salvation through the working of the spirit, which results in a belief of the truth. And let me remind you that a belief of the truth is not just acknowledging something to be true. It is absolutely entrusting oneself to this reality. In other words, uh, if you will look at reality, all those who know Christ and have trusted Christ, we are totally hinging our entire eternity upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Totally. This is belief in Christ. Not claiming Jesus is I acknowledge him to be. No. This is our entire eternity hinges on his sufficiency. We are totally casting ourselves upon him. That's what we're doing as believers. And so that's this belief of the truth that is mentioned here in Thessalonians. Paul is saying patient through the truth. I help be reminded of John 3. When Jesus says in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he should not see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, right? And he says, well, how can I be born again? Can I enter again a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Or actually says, a man... Uh, that a man is born of, of, of uh, water and spirit, remember? And then he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So here you find this uh, connection of, of the spirit of God in relation to following verses. So Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus that we are born again of the spirit, sanctification of the spirit, 2 Thessalonians. But then just verses later, one of the most well-known verses of all Scripture, of course, is in the same chapter, and that's verse 16, right? For God so loved the world, they gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So when you read that verse, and then verse 17, of course, uh, God said, not as son in the world condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he that believes on him is not condemned, not as condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But when you read these verses, you see that people put much emphasis, follow, on whosoever believes in him. But let me remind you, there is no genuine belief and casting one's entire spiritual well-being upon Christ and unto Christ without being born again of the Spirit of God, which Jesus explained in John 3 in the previous verses. So you cannot disconnect these two. We are saved through belief, but belief takes place through sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, our, our hearts and minds are turned from unbelief to genuine biblical belief, which is totally resting in Christ, completely, unreservedly resting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So he's chosen us to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. This is a positional work and belief of the truth. And even in here, in this, tr- in this statement, we see that this positional sanctification results in, er, demonstrates itself in a very practical manner. In other words, so because the Spirit has brought me to repentance, a change of mind concerning who Jesus truly is, now that results in a continued belief in the truth. A continued reliance upon the truth. In 6.11, we see this truth again that sanctification is positional, but yet manifests itself in a very practical manner. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you. Now, Paul had just listed a whole list of sinners, unrighteous people. Again, not the acts themselves, but the sinners. He talks about uh, those that abusers of themselves of mankind, adulterer, and so on and so forth, and he speaks about these individuals, not their sins, but they themselves. He mentions the people, not the sins. And he says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So here's what Paul is saying in in the context of, of course, 1 Corinthians 6, and we spent some time there months back or even years back now, and in that passage, if you recall with me, we saw clearly again that Paul lists sinners, not sins, and then he makes a distinction. Such were some of you, but now you're not. In other words, you're not only no longer, you're no longer living like this because you've been sanctified, because you've been washed, because you've been justified. So this positional truth is demonstrated in a very practical manner of one's living. Now, let me again remind you of a truth that all of you should clearly know and understand. Trying to live this way, you any position. But when this is true positionally of you, it will absolutely change how you live. So this is positional sanctification that is practically experienced, practically being lived out, practically being manifested. The evidence of sanctification is irrefutable. There will be a distinct difference in the life, including the lifestyle, of those who've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. So when Jude says they were sanctified by God, this is a huge... He's not claiming, oh, I'm writing to those who claim to be sanctified. He's not saying I'm writing to those who try to sanctify themselves. He's not saying I'm writing to those who believe they are sanctified. No, I'm writing to those who've been sanctified by God. And that means that one has changed from have been translated from the kingdom of darkness 
that they who were spiritually dead have now been given And so that if it's true, then there is an absolute transformation within that one who moves from darkness to light and that placed into light into spiritual life. There is an absolute transformation that is evident and present. Second, he says that they were preserved in Jesus Christ, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ. Now Jude further emphasized this truth in the concluding statements of this epistle in Jude verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is the Lord who saves us. It is the Lord who sanctifies us. It is the Lord who preserves us in this salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-24, Paul says this, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless Jesus Christ. Now notice the next statement. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. It is important that we recognize that verse 22 of this text, specifically, I want to point this out, abstain from all appearance of evil. For years, I believe this to be the case, and I'm sure you've heard this, and many of you still may believe this today. You hear the statement, abstain from all appearance of evil, and you immediately think that means that you are not supposed to do anything that looks as though it's wicked. Do you understand that's not what this is talking about at all? <laughs> this verse, abstain from all appearances of evil, is not saying, oh, make sure you don't put yourself in a position that looks compromising. Though we shouldn't do that, but that's not what this is saying. When he says abstain from all appearance of evil, what he's saying is refrain from all forms of wickedness. And stay away from all forms of wickedness. He's not saying, make sure you don't look like you're doing something wrong. That is not what he is saying here. But abstain from all appearance of evil, that we are to refrain from all forms of evil, no matter what it may be. When evil arises, when it appears, we are to refrain from all forms of it, completely. So to abstain from all appearance of evil is not a command to make certain that we do not do anything that looks wrong or sinful, but rather that we are to avoid all forms of sin and wickedness. And this passage exhorts the reader to test all things. Notice, prove all things. To uphold that which is good or godly. Hold fast that which is good. To refrain from all forms of sin. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And in, in following this exhortation, one is to place complete confidence in, pow, a, a, I'm sorry, confidence in God to perform as he has promised. Verses 23 and 24, notice what he says. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved under the cover of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here Paul is saying, hey, listen, test all things, uphold that which is good and that which is godly, refrain from all forms of evil, and my prayer is that you be sanctified holy uh, by God. The very God of peace sanctify you holy. Don't say, he's not saying sanctify yourselves. No, the, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the next verse. Faithful is he. With you who also will do it. We are eternally preserved in Jesus Christ, which will result in a life being continually conformed to his image. Again, 
If this is a positional truth that we are sanctified and that sanctification is manifested in a very practical manner, it's also true we are preserved in Jesus Christ that that preservation is going to be evident as well. Think of it with, you, with me like this for a moment, just as a, a, a quick example. If there is something that has been preserved, such as vegetables or fruits, and you can them, I remember growing up years ago as a, just a child, in our garage we had a chest freezer, we had an upright freezer, not to mention the fridge and freezer that was in the house, and we had my grandpa's garden, and we had vegetables that mom would blanch and she would freeze. But then from years back, and even some of my childhood, I remember this vague, faintly, but, but not as much so as the blanching and freezing, that mom would actually preserve things in, in jars, in mason jars. And w- whether it be pickles or some type of fruit or what have you, that they would take, and I remember there was, a, there was, a, uh, there was uh, some shelves in our garage where there were jars of preserved fruits or vegetables that had been there for years prior to me even seeing them. And here's the reality of it. I could look at them, and many of them had rusted, the lids and the and the you know, the seals had rusted. They were popped open, or they had been broken, or cracked. The jars, what have you? But here's the point I'm getting to. It wasn't very difficult to discern whether or not something was actually still preserved or not, because I could look at it, or smell it, or see it, and know that's no good. Hear what I'm saying. If sa- positional sanctification, which is done by God's Spirit, by God the Father, His Spirit doing this, produces and results in that sanctification being lived out in and through our lives, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, at the latter part of verse 12, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So if this positional sanctification, by God the Father, if this is manifested through a practical, very practical means and manner of living, then is it not also true that those who've been eternally preserved in Jesus Christ, that there will be a clear and distinct evidence that they are preserved? (laughs) Because that which is not preserved is rotten. Are you following? This ties in right with the sanctification part. Because those who have been preserved in Jesus Christ, this does not mean that they are exposed in the sense of their entire lives being exposed, not out involved. Okay, think about the preservation again. Those, those fruits or vegetables, they are sealed. They are still in the same atmosphere that everything else is. They are still in the same location as everything else, but they are kept from that which would contaminate, from that which would cause them to rot. The point being this, we are in the world not only. Did Jesus say that? And he said to them in his prayer again in John 17, keep them 
from the world. Not talking about from world as in the people that are in the world, but from worldly corruption. And we are preserved in Jesus Christ. And if that is true, then there will be evidence of that preservation in your life. In other words, it's not as though somebody make a claim that, oh, I'm going to heaven one day, and yet their lives be filled with filth and wickedness and ungodliness on a continual basis. This is their whole communication or lifestyle. We just dealt with that in John, did we not? In 1 John specifically. That is the evidence of one who knows not Christ. And John makes it clear when he says, you're a liar, <laughs> and the truth is not in you. So we, we are eternally preserved in Jesus Christ, and it results in a life being continually conformed to his image. Salvation produces practical sanctification in one's life, but the preservation of one's salvation spirit is in Christ and his faithful work alone, which will be evident as one who's been preserved. Then third, he says they were called by God, obviously. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Then verse 14, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, in this verse, we, we mentioned this a moment ago, 2 Thessalonians 2, we see the three conditions are all inclusive in the work of salvation here in this passage, just as much so in Jude verse 1. In other words, if one is sanctified by God, he's preserved in Jesus Christ and called by God to live in the truth and glory of this redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Number three, let's look at the thesis of this epistle. Jude verse 3, we read this a moment ago as well. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The first century church had become inundated with Gnosticism, and the beliefs of Gnosticism varied greatly, but what Gnostics did believe in common was that there was an, was an alternative to Christianity. So Gnosticism took on many forms. There were some forms of Gnosticism which looked very much so like Christianity, and then there are other forms on the other end of the spectrum that looked nothing like Christianity, but Gnosticism, nonetheless, had inundated the church, and, and that was what's being dealt with in, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John greatly, as well as in Jude and in Peter's epistles. Gnosticism is a common problem, and it had crept into the church. And Gnosticism, the word Gnosticism, comes from the word Gnosis, which is that of knowledge. And so it, it, it is in some forms, if you will, a quest for knowledge in a sense, or also, it, is, it can be a belief that, that one is, um, that there are certain groups or certain individuals that have more knowledge than others that bring them to conclusions that others will never come to or understanding that others will never come to. So, Gnosticism was rooted in one's personal knowledge and in some cases one's exclusive knowledge or the knowledge possessed by an exclusive group of individuals. In any case, Gnosticism was anti-Christ and anti-gospel. And Judah is a letter that was written to incite the followers of Jesus Christ to not only remain faithful to the gospel, to defend the faith or the truth of the gospel. And defending the faith does not simply mean to fight with people who oppose Christ, but to have the ability to answer the questions concerning the faith. Now remember, if you will, with me, that even Paul stated, did he not? Knowledge puffeth up. Remember that? 
And he spoke in Corinthians about man's wisdom. Remember that? And he came not to them with, with uh, excellent words and such a speech and such, but rather he came in the wisdom of God. And you have man's wisdom. That does not mean that we are not to exercise knowledge. But he says knowledge puffeth up. And what he is saying is that knowledge it's alone will never be truth. And what knowledge will do, though, it will make you proud of what you know. So here Jude is saying, okay, here's this issue that's being dealt with. And Peter dealt with this as well. And I said, as I mentioned, John did. And here he is saying that there's this issue that's arising even within the church by those who would inundate and come into the church. And he said, so now what Jude is writing is to incite the, the followers of Jesus Christ to not only remain faithful to the gospel, but to defend the faith or the truth of the gospel. Simon Peter spoke of this in his epistle as well as I've mentioned, 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happier ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Jude wrote with the intent of drawing the reader's attention to the faith that has been handed down to them. And the faith, as mentioned in this letter, is faith in its fullness. It is the tenets, the doctrine or teaching of the faith, which is, of course, Christianity, which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, this does not mean at one time, but rather was one time given. As we've already discovered some of the similarity, it is believed that Jude referenced Simon Peter this one writing this letter. When we compare Jude... Uh, Peter chapter 2, we find many similarities, not only in the structure, but even the actual examples and words which are used. And if this is true, then we can view Peter's second epistle as a warning of the false teachers who would come, and Jude's letter as a warning that the dangers and and false prophets that Simon Peter Peter wrote of had now arrived. (laughs) So look at, you can see second Peter as though Peter is writing saying, this is what's happening, beware, and Jude is saying, this is what is here. In 2 Peter 2, 1-3. through 3, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now look at Jude verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old into this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar language used here. And Peter's saying, oh, there shall be among you. And Jude's saying, oh, they're here. Here they are. And he's exposing them. And it's amazing if you think about it. Pause for just a moment with me. It is amazing how quickly Satan planted tares among the wheat in the first century church. Is it not? Even in the days of the first century church, there were multiple warnings given by the apostles against the heresy that was so rapidly spreading. And listen, hear me please. When John wrote of the spirit of Antichrist, he was talking about in his present time of writing. (laughs) You understand that, right? And when Jude writes about these men who've crept in 
He's not talking about 21st century. He's talking about 1st century church. When Peter wrote, he's talking about 1st century church. When Paul wrote in Timothy and warned about in the last days, all these men, lovers of, the, of their flesh, lovers of themselves. Remember, he's not talking about 21st century. He's talking about 1st century. So when Jews says contend for the faith he's not talking to 21st century he's talking to first century because the opposition was already so greatly pronounced within the church against the truth of the gospel and sufficiency of christ and if that were true in the first century it's just as true in the 21st century so i want you to be aware though we read off and especially uh, Paul's epistle to Timothy, for instance, we know Paul wrote to Timothy, but we read those statements and so many times, especially American pastors, <laughs> take those passages as though, oh, see, Paul was writing about these days right now. No, Paul was writing about his day right then. However, the truth is still just as much so accurate today as it was then. And so it's important that you recognize this because the first century church had become tacked from without, but also by those who were within. Remember, John said this. He said, they went out from among us because they were not of us they were among them but they were not of them but those were attacks that were taking place within they were not part of the body of christ therefore they left they 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 went out they couldn't handle so much of this but yet still they were not they were counted among them think of judas again iscariot that is you remember whenever the lord at the last uh supper or the supper in the upper room remember whenever jesus is speaking about that he will be betrayed and, and every one of his disciples, I believe, had fear in their heart that they were the one who was going to betray him. Remember when they asked, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, He to whom I give sop, it is he that will betray me. And he gives Judas the bread. And none of them picked up on it even then. And Jesus says, That which thou do, do this quickly. Remember? And none of them picked up on it. In fact, they thought he went out to provide provision. (laughs) Here he is saying this. Judas, and we know Jesus chose Judas according to prophecy and according that he would be betrayed. We know all of this. But even among the disciples of our Lord, there was Judas that was chosen by Christ for the very sole purpose that Judas would betray him. And yet, the other disciples didn't pick up on that. Being again that there are tares sown among the wheat. And we are to contend for the faith, as Jude announces here. There was heresy so rapidly spreading these warnings are given. And it's for this reason that Galatians, Colossians, 2nd. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude deal with the threat of such heresy and how we should not only know truth, we should not only propagate the truth, we should not only defend the truth, but we are to live our lives in the truth and consequently live out the truth 
in our daily lives. Let me try to finish up here with this overview. Fourth, significant truths declared in this epistle. Statements made in the epistle of Jude that are of tremendous importance, and one of these statements is in the thesis statement itself, which we've just read, and we find near the beginning of the epistle in verse 3, while another is found in the conclusion of the letter, which we've all already read as well. And these are, two, are just two examples of several other significant truths which Jude points out within the epistle. Verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. By the way, the word contend, as we'll see, it, 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 it goes back even to this idea of, of an agony concerning the faith, of this struggle concerning the faith. Verses 24 and 25. Now I'm able to keep you from falling before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. These two verses, and there's many others that are of tremendous significance in, this, in truths that are stated in Jude's epistle, but yet these two accounts here in the beginning of the letter and the ending of the letter, of course, these are stated and quoted by so many. Earnestly contend for the faith. You hear that all the time. But then you also hear to him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless and faultless. And, and so these are two obviously significant truths. And there are many more statements of tremendous significance within the body of this letter. However, these are two cer- certainly stand out within this, within this letter. And then let me conclude with this, the warnings provided in this epistle, Jude 4, or verses 4 through 19. And we've read this, we will not read them all again. But the warnings provided by Jude in this epistle include at least two purposes. First of all, Jude pointed out the false teachers and heretics who had invaded the church. And then second, Jude reminds the readers of God's judgment upon those who remain in unbelief in verses 5 through 7. It's interesting because he gives three examples of God's judgment and three examples of those who had fallen away, if you will. Within this epistle, as indicated within the thesis Jude stated, there are exhortations provided by Jude to the reader. Jude warns against those who oppose the Christian faith, but also exhorted the church to defend and live in the truth which had been handed down to them by God. Just as there were those in Jude's day who opposed the faith or Christianity, there are those today who do the same. Whether the opposition comes in the form of an outright attack against the faith or whether it comes in the form of simply offering alternatives to the truth of God's word, we are to have discernment, we are to remember the Lord's judgment upon such who would continue in unbelief, and we are to defend, which is to say we are to be apologists of the faith. We are to defend the faith. Defending the faith does not mean we strike up fights and arguments all the time either. That's not what it means. And we'll get to that, what it means. But it's, 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 it has to do with that of, of apologetics, basically, as Peter says as well. To be ready to give answer to any man that asks you the reason of the hope that's within you. And apologists, we are to be rooted and grounded. And, and by the way, listen, one of the, reason that, one of the reasons that so many are so easily deterred from truth is because they don't know the truth. If you don't know truth, then you'll believe a lie. But if you know truth, you're not going to believe a lie. Again, I'll give you a very rudimentary example. Think of it like this with me. We know that there is an absolute truth concerning the planet upon which we live of gravity. Right? If something goes up, it comes back down. So if we know the truth of gravity, it does not matter how much someone tries to convince us that if we jump off of the top of this building, we're going to fly. 
No, that's not going to happen. Well, how can you say you know that won't happen? Because I know of gravity. And I understand that gravity is a thing. And I understand that just your beliefs or what you claim will not change the absolute truth concerning gravity. So I know the truth of gravity. Hence, it doesn't matter how convincing your arguments are. It doesn't matter you may be, it doesn't matter how elaborate you may be about why you believe what you believe, I know the truth. So your arguments have absolutely no persuasive power on me. But I can only say that because I know the truth of gravity. And if we know the truth or not we think we know, no, the teaching of Scripture, the overall teaching of Scripture, the, the big picture we understand how every piece God has placed to fit in this big picture of his truth and we therefore are understanding of God's word and its purpose and its intent and we live in God's word and we continue to grow in God's word then we are not easily tossed about by every wind of doctrine because we are anchored in truth no matter how persuasive someone may be if you know truth you know truth. And so contending for the faith is to be an apologist of the faith, defending the truth, defending the faith. But if you're going to defend the faith, you must first know the truth of the faith. Or else how can you defend it? So this letter is written to incite. It, it warns, and Jude uses examples of Old Testament to warn these believers concerning those who've come in, these men corrupt and unawares who are spreading heresies and lies and who are wanting to, to turn them from the truth to if you will, to an alternative. But let me remind you of this truth. If there were some alternative, that would mean that God's provision is insufficient. And His provision is not insufficient. There is no alternative, and there is no need for an alternative because Christ is all sufficient. So we will see how we are to contend for the faith. Defend the truth. You must know the truth, and you must be aware of the warnings as Jude gives that there, here's these examples of these who did not stand in truth, and this is their end. This is their judgment. This is how God judged them. And he's warned against that, saying, don't find yourself as one of these. Now, a true believer will be preserved blameless to him that's able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless, to find you blameless, right? He says that. And in, in Jude, or in Thessalonians, Paul says, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. For in Philippians, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's not we are trying to do this. It, the, the, the living out of this truth is the result God has done and is doing in us. So let's be aware of that. Hence, this is our confidence. My confidence, again, I told you, my entire eternity is hidden efficiency of Jesus Christ to redeem me and to keep me. <laughs> because here's what I know. I cannot redeem myself and I cannot keep myself. 
and I can't even sanctify myself. And neither can you. But I'm totally resting in he who can and he who will because he has promised to do so. So, see, we can defend the faith when you understand it. And why would we not defend this truth? For Christ is our only hope. He is our only hope.